0: From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to the Defenders of Capitalism podcast. This is Michael Williams, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mitch Whitus. Say hello, Mitch. How's everybody doing today? Thanks for joining us. This is the podcast where we talk about capitalism, defending capitalism, promoting capitalism, advocating for capitalism because it's the only moral socioeconomic system. And today we're going to talk about an application of of capitalism to a specific industry. This was your idea, Mitch. I appreciate you coming up with this. Uh, It's it's an interesting thing because as an investor, I've thought about this industry for a long time. Uh, You know, clients sometimes ask me, why don't you invest in this? Why don't you invest in that? What do you think of this? And the industry we're talking about is the airline industry. It has some uh, has some some history. You know, the airline industry industry has been around for what now 100 and 120 years or so, um, in some form or another. And we're going to talk about it in the context, mostly not as investors, uh, but as uh, as an application of you know what is. What is an industry like when it's so heavily regulated? What would it be like if it weren't? Those kinds of things. So it's it's interesting because airlines, since their inception, uh, have never made money. I don't know if you're aware of that as a much. whole. Yeah, as a whole. Yeah. I mean, obviously there have been spurts where United Airlines had record profits, and you know this this year, or that year, or one particular airline did well over a time period. But as an industry, since the very beginning, since the the Wright brothers uh, started flight in the U.S. in Kitty Hawk uh, back in 1903. The industry itself has been, on a net basis, a loser of money. Um, But it's a crucial industry, right? We all, I mean, lots of us uh, enjoy flying for business or or leisure. In fact, I have a a significant travel coming up this uh, fall. I'm going to be uh, actually, it's interesting because I'm going to be taking my two older daughters to Iceland for a visit. And Then we're going to visit their younger sister in Rome, who's doing a semester semester abroad. And then I have a conference in Oslo. So I'm going to be all over the map as far as travel in Europe. And then, and it's interesting talking about, okay, how am I getting there? Which, which airline am I going to be taking? You know, there are probably maybe up to five or six airline, different airlines that I'll be using. And we could say, first of all, that, of course,
1: airlines are still a luxury, right? Going to Europe, you know, originally what you would just be talking about would have been a, you know, four or five month long adventure, right? Yeah, absolutely. Before the advent of commercial aviation. So we'll start off the episode just by saying, very appreciative for the technology of passenger aircraft. But... The problem is, like you were saying, they are notorious for bad customer service. They have usually pretty poor stock performance. They're always getting bailed out by the government. They're always going bankrupt. We're hearing all the time now about merges. They're trying to take each other over, trying to become more competitive because they're losing money. It just is a crazy industry for as much value as it actually seems to provide people.
0: No kidding. In fact, you know, one of the... the the best known and, and best performing investors of all time, Warren Buffett says, said at one time, "If you, if an astute investor uh, was around during the Wright brothers, he would have shot them <laughs> at that time because he would have saved us all a whole lot of, whole lot of money uh, in terms of investments. Um, because again, they've they've mostly not been great in terms of a financial uh, investment and in looking at it. Uh, but like you said." most of us really do uh, gain great value from it. Um, and I don't know if I use that term luxury anymore because it's amazing how the average person does fly on commercial airlines and does it relatively cheaply. I mean, yeah. uh, lots of people can fly today. And that's that's an interesting thing too. It's a, That's a fairly recent phenomenon, uh, really only in the last 30 or 40 years where you had uh, the average person be able to afford it like a, you know, as a non-luxury type of thing, um, but let's talk about why. You know, uh, maybe we start from the beginning. You know, uh, the beginning we mean as when the airline industry, quote unquote, got deregulated. Right? Yeah.
1: So I think an important distinction to make is that what we think of now is the golden age of airline flying when it was considered to be as we were saying very luxurious you know the 60s and the 70s well it turns out that it really wasn't that great (laughs) and part of the reason well a major part of the reason is because of extreme government regulation and involvement with the airline industries that enriched the few at the expense of the many and maybe you could talk more about that mike
0: well, and that—that that is the the history of the airline industry from day one. Uh, this is prior to that quote deregulation. When I say quote deregulation, we'll talk more about that, uh, which actually happened under uh, President Carter. You know, it's interesting that um, lots of people think of his uh, uh, you know, of, of Pre- President Reagan as the great deregulator, somebody who put a lot of emphasis on deregulating the economy. Um, that's somewhat true I mean it's mixed bag with both Carter and Reagan but but Carter was the one who actually pushed for deregulation of the airline industry and other transportation industries you know rail and so forth um, but we're talking about you know going back to the very beginning it was heavily regulated and it, mostly because the airlines or the air travel quickly was adopted by governments as as a military strategy and it's obvious you know a uh, 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 a military or a country that had air power and could uh, bomb their enemies in war or could surveil uh, from, from the skies um, had superior advantage. And so quickly after the invention of flight, um, governments took over and they said, we, we, this is a strategic thing, we need to, for our own defense, we need to regulate it, and then we're gonna do it, uh, of course, with uh, commercial airlines as well. And so, from the very beginning, the airline industry has been a heavily heavily regulated uh, business. Um, you know, the, the federal government was controlling ticket prices, schedules, routes. Uh, now, i I'm, you know you're you're talking about uh, going back to the beginning. I don't know what's your earliest travel by flight memory. I remember briefly. Very brief,
1: like a few seconds of memory of traveling when I was like four and we were landing and it was raining and I remember screaming and crying. So (laughs) great memories. You were four years old.
0: Do you remember where you were going?
1: No, but I mean, not much has really changed since. Still (laughs) screaming and crying all the time.
0: (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I have a similar memory. Uh, This is way before your time. Um, I was probably... I think I was six, and this is the first time uh, my mother had flown, ever. Wow. Um, and she had four small, small children. Uh, I being the second oldest, but she had four of us. And we were flying back to see family in Louisiana. And uh, we were, we, it was the same kind of thing. I, it was very miserable experience for all four of us, and everyone else on the flight, because it was very turbulent. And I remember uh, at the time, they had china. They had literally not you know, the, the kind of plastic stuff that they serve food on, but they, they were serving almost kind of a white-glove dinner Yeah, with china and glass. And it was just, you know, things were crashing all over the place. And my mom had these four kids that were screaming, you know, miserable, earaches, you know, the pressure. <laughs> and it was a, a very harrowing experience for her. Um, now, since that time, I've really enjoyed flying most of my life. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have sometimes a little bit of difficulties with heights, but I, I uh, have mostly overcome that, especially in regard to flying. But it's been an enjoyable experience. But going back to the regulation that the government has uh, had instituted at that time, uh, you know, all the routes were regulated, all the, the prices, all the schedules that were dictated by the Federal Aviation Authority. Well,
1: yeah, there's this entity at the time called the Civil Aeronautics Board, the CAB. Right. And that's what really has its hand in the day-to-day operations of the airline industry. And so when we're talking about deregulation, what we're talking about is in 1978, the president signs a bill to, over a period of several years, essentially... Get rid of the Civil Aeronautics Board and slowly turn back its powers to the private sector. That's the idea.
0: Yeah, and and, and the main reason is because people were clamoring for lower prices. You know, they wanted yeah. to have uh, cheaper airline tickets. In fact, it's interesting because Carter was a force for that, and so was Senator Kennedy. I don't know if you know this, but no Edward Kennedy, who's hardly a free market yeah. champion. <laughs> But he was responding to some constituents who were saying that uh, – and, and he observed things and said, you know, we, we, we ought to have uh, lower prices. Um, and that isn't necessarily you know, – doesn't necessarily mean uh, uh, legislatures, the president, are advocating for deregulation, so to speak. And I, I always put that in, in scare quotes because they didn't really free up the airline industry, so to speak. Getting rid of, getting rid of the Civil Aeronautics Board wasn't uh, deregulating the entire industry – but it was definitely having a, a, a massive index or a, a massive influence on uh, ticket prices because they were the ones who, who had the ability to set the prices. And studies have shown consistently that the cost per ticket uh, for airline tickets for the same route, you know, if you're ta- talking apples to apples, have really come down over that time period. Over the last 40 or 50 years, they really have. Now, obviously, you have to make some adjustments for inflation, but... But that move on the part of the government to at least deregulate some part of the industry had a really positive effect in terms of allowing people uh, to have much more affordable air transport. And one
1: thing, too, to mention, Mike, is that most airlines were not necessarily behind deregulation because some airlines actually were enriched by this scheme.
0: Absolutely. And that's the thing is that people sometimes think you know deregulation or being pro free market is really for you know trying to be trying to be for the enrichment of business and that's right. not what it means now businesses over time uh, will be profitable if they're left alone either that or they'll go into some other business they'll get out of this business because they can't be profitable and that's that's the whole point of having have that's the whole practical point of having a free market is that you get efficiency through competition and the people who can't compete uh, go out of business now it's it's a difficult business. So let's be honest about this. I mean, I, I again, go, kind of going back to looking at it from an investment standpoint, and I only bring that up because I, that's what I do in my day job, and lots of people who know me know that's what I look at. This is not any kind of investment advice. This is, you know, all the standard disclaimers apply. We're not talking investment advice. But the airline industry has some unique things about it. You know, one of the key things is physics, right? You know, you have, you have trying to lot, lift – This is what the Wrights had to deal with is figure out how to actually have, you know, this heavy thing, both a human being and a contraption that they're flying in. And now in this case, maybe three or four hundred people with a massive uh, tube getting off the ground. So you have that physics issue, but you have you have weather. Um, You know, the weather can change and that can make a difference in flight and certainly have a lot of capital expenditures. You know, airplanes are not cheap. Um, they're expensive things to build and expensive things to maintain. So it's a very capital intensive business. But on top of that, you have lots of government regulation, the unpredictability with regard to government regulation. You have unions, you know, you have, you have all these things, all these factors to, that affect whether uh, a business such as this can be profitable. Um, and you know, that protection that, that some of the major airlines had to be profitable, um, made them fat and happy and lazy and they resisted right they resisted a deregulation they wanted to have their own routes and and have uh they were probably you know in a sense in bed with the civil aeronautics board you know we'll just make a deal and uh, we'll do these things here and we can keep our prices up and we'll, we'll be profitable even under those cases they weren't necessarily profitable it depended on the the airline i mean it's amazing how if you do a wikipedia or a Google search on just failed airlines, you'll see this long list of, and, and most people who've been around for a bit, I mean, you're a pretty young guy, but I don't know if you ne- remember the name Braniff Airlines. Or, no. You know, there's all kinds of well-known names from my age, at least. Uh, Continental Airlines, uh, oh, trans Continental was around in my time. Yeah, and Continental, they did go bankrupt and then were picked up by United. United, yeah. United became the parent company, and that's oftentimes what happens is you have these airlines that'll fail, And then they'll reorganize under Chapter 11 or some chapter, you know, some bankruptcy laws and either get picked up by another airline or because they're under Chapter 11, they can really reduce their costs again and then compete. And that's, they're using the the bankruptcy laws in this country to compete, you know, by every so often saying, okay, things didn't work out, we have to declare bankruptcy again and we'll reorganize under a lower cost structure.
1: So I think, Mike, what you're kind of getting to here is saying we deregulated in 78. Things did get better. Absolutely. We actually got competition. We got things like Southwest Airlines, low-cost carriers. Absolutely. And I could actually – I love talking about Southwest Airlines because that's actually, in my opinion, one of the rare airlines that has created in the past a sustainable competitive advantage through some of the decisions that they've made of how they operate their company. This isn't about Southwest Airlines. This is about the tragedy of aviation.
0: Well, it is about Southwest in the sense that that that, that model. Um, there are other airlines. Now, some people don't like Southwest. Most people I know who've flown on it do, but there's lots of people who won't fly Southwest because of the nature of how they board and oh, yeah. the way they've tried to keep their costs low. It stresses me
1: out to board on Southwest Airlines, I have well, to admit.
0: Have you uh, flown on airlines like uh, Ryanair over in Europe? No. Or the founder of Ryanair, interestingly enough, was you know named Ryan, and he was one of the original low cost producers in Europe. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that model is that, I mean, the, the thing that makes those kind of airlines profitable is bare bones cost, right? They're trying to keep a cheap ticket; it's a commodity type of thing, so they got to keep their costs down. And then they got to they got to sell some other stuff, right? They got to sell snacks and whatever. Everything is an add on. Uh, At least with Ryanair, and that's sort of what it happens. You know what's happened with maybe Spirit and Frontier and some of those airlines today in the U.S. They're trying to make that same kind of thing. Here's a really upfront low-cost bus ticket, so to speak, right? Yeah. you pay. But then for if you want that. a seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you
1: gotta pay for that. You want, you want oxygen on this
0: flight, you better pay that's for right. that. That's right. We're gonna add everything. Everything's an add-on. And before you know it, you're paying, you know, about the same of what you might uh fly for some on some other airline. But that's the key key is that people get to make the choice. You know, how important it is to you to select your seat ahead of time, how important it is for you to have a, a check bag versus a carry-on bag, you know, those kinds of things. Can you can you fly you know, almost naked and, and get where you want to and, and uh, play, pay the cheapest price? Um, and, and those are real issues that the, the airline has to deal with. And so they do end up getting passed through to, to customers, especially if you think of it as a commodity. If, if people are saying, you know, the only thing that matters to me is to get from point A to point B as cheaply as possible, then that's the kind of competition you're talking about. And, and you know, if, you're, if you're in that business... Then you have to be able to really compete in terms of costs. And when you talk about all of the things that I mentioned before that an airline has to deal with, weather union so forth, then you know their costs are sort of built in. There's a lot of a lot of fixed costs, obviously, but they have a lot of variable costs as well. And so that makes it a tough business to operate in.
1: So let's talk a little bit about Airline Deregulation Act comes in, takes away the Civil Aeronautics Board by the mid-1980s, I think. So after that do you want to talk a little bit about, Mike, what are the regulations that are still with the airline industry? What's, what's the FAA? You, you mentioned that earlier. What, what regulations are still impacting the industry?
0: Well, they still manage everything in the way of air traffic, the controllers. They still manage everything in the way of uh, routes, aircraft certification, uh, enforcing what you can bring onto the air, aircraft or not. Airport uh, regulation themselves. Airports are regulated mostly by the government. Uh, All the licensing requirements, whether it's licensing the pilots, they probably uh, have everything to do with how uh, flight attendants get trained, um, all the safety requirements. Um, So those are all still heavily regulated by the federal government. Uh, And most people don't realize that at least 20% of the price of your ticket is going to taxes still to pay for that bureaucracy that's actually designed you know quote to to make a standardization and safety there um, now airports are uh are, you know as i said that's a, that's another uh part of the industry that's that's uh regulated what's interesting is that many of us who are for deregulation in a much wider principled way as in laissez faire you know, have the market make these decisions, uh, have to argue for, you know, could you have a privatized industry? Could you have this be privatized where the government stays out of it? Um, and it, it is interesting that um, Canada itself has deregulated, privatized, so to speak, their their air traffic controllers. And people say, well, how would that ever work? Well, it, it's worked pretty well in Canada for, I think, another f- at least 15 or 20 years now. Um, and they have a, a good experience with that.
1: So that's what, that's what I want to get to, is from a capitalist point of view, how should we view the airline industry and how can we make the airline industry better? One little aside I want to take before we get Well, I to wanna, that. Well, I want
0: to interrupt you there. I mean, you're okay. saying how could we do that, right? How could you and I do that? Who's the we you're talking about? I always want to well, who throw are on we my talk- little challenge. Who are or-
1: we talking to now, right now?
0: Well, we're we're talking to the public who should clamor. We're talking to people who care about their freedom and care about good results, both from a principled property rights standpoint, but also a practical, you know, can I have a better experience and cheaper prices and better quality standpoint. And in all cases, and that's part of what, what this podcast is about, in all cases, having the government stay out of these kinds of things really will affect both the principle of property rights and your your experience as a customer. But the people who should be improving airlines are the ones who own airlines. And the ones who own airlines will do it when they're incented or when they don't have the kind of onerous regulations on them. Um, And that that means that the the ticket-buying public will go toward the airlines that operate either more efficiently or give them better value, or both. Um,
1: So... Let's let's
0: dive into this a little bit more, Mike.
1: So air traffic control. You mentioned privatizing that. I think what a lot of people will say is look what's happening right now. We just heard this horror story a few weeks ago. Passengers coming into Denver. I, I think there was a um there were massive wind shears in the atmosphere because of a thunderstorm. And so planes were diverted to Wyoming. And passengers had to wait four, five, six hours on the tarmac. So people say look these private companies they're having people wait hours and hours on the tarmac they don't care about us they just want to make money you're just going to have chaos why do you need more privatization there why privatize air traffic control then you're just going to have chaos right
0: well you know as i mentioned before airlines are a specific kind of business and wind shear is a reality and, you know that's a physics weather phenomenon that's a reality and any long-term business owner wants to protect their business and they don't want to have people <laughs> crashing in wind shear or other kinds of weather-related accidents. So safety is going to be the number one concern of any airline operator as a private entity. Now, you know, I can see people sitting there listening to this going, those greedy bastards don't care about my safety. When I own Why would they care about it? They would maybe take more risks. The thing is that you can't operate a business and kill your customers. That's not a good business model. Uh, long-term, what you want are people who continually buy from you. I mean, unless so, you're in
1: the mafia.
0: That's <laughs> right. That's a unique kind of business. <laughs> um, but my point is that uh, you know, wind sure is a real thing. Uh, winter storms, hurricanes, uh, all kinds of weather phenomena are real, real things that we don't, at least, at least at this point in time, have control over. Um, and so a business has to operate in that environment and they have to make decisions about, okay, what's the safety of our customers? Uh, you know, how's, How are we going to get them where they want to go on time but get them there safely? And there are going to be naturally uh, some delays when you have that kind of event. But if you have entrepreneurs who are left free to plan themselves and plan routes, um, they're going to try to have backups. They're going to try to make sure that they have Uh, Ability to serve their customers well. And my contention would be is you'd have fewer delays, uh, better on-time delivery, um, and more responsive airlines if you had less regulation. So with like air traffic controllers, well, you know,
1: I mean, we know all business cares about is efficiency, right? So we privatize air traffic control. All they're worrying about is just how many planes can get in and out of here in an hour, right? We're going to have planes crashing into each other. They don't care. They you just- know, it's
0: interesting you bring that up. And you may be aware of this. I don't know if you if you read the same thing that I did in kind of pre- preparing for this. But in, I think still to this day, when a plane lands, there's a piece of paper that gets handed off between air, air traffic controllers in the airport that they're landing at. There's a little piece of paper that gets handed off. One guy's bringing them in, and the other one's actually, once they're uh, making their approach and coming down on the ground, there's two different people and two different people. There's pieces of paper that are handed. They actually, because it's that heavily regulated, there hasn't been the incentive to actually use much greater technology. Now, I use the Canadian example. The Canadian air traffic controllers have much better technology. They're not handing slips of paper to try to get airline, airplanes landed. Um, so, again, it comes back to incentives. You know, if you have the incentive to be more efficient, you're likely going to employ technology that can make things much more efficient and therefore both reduce costs, increase reliability and safety. And that is one example of, of how that, ha- that happens when you have a deregulated aspect. You, you change the incentive structure so, so that businesses now uh, need to, and, and the air traffic control itself is part of that business. Now, obviously, there's a, a, a big piece of its safety, but again, I go back to the fact that the, the business owners have every interest in keeping those people alive and safe and happy so they come back and pay them again next time.
1: Okay. Well, to continue being the devil's advocate here, Mike, let's talk about the TSA Transportation Security Administration. There's been talk <laughs> about that for years. Sorry. About privatizing. If we privatize that, We're all going to (laughs) die.
0: What makes you say that?
1: Well, aren't you just going to have private businesses? They don't really care what's being regulated getting onto a plane, right? They just want to get people on. They want to get their money for tickets, get people from point A to point B, right? When government's in charge of the TSA, we know they're really doing a good job, right?
0: So um, if you ask anybody on the street, do you think that the TSA really does keep you safer? Now there's uh, every comedian I know does has a whole bit on the TSA, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whether yeah. it's Seinfeld or whoever, they all have their own. Uh, you know, it's one of the biggest laugh lines they can get is pulling out the TSA, and and asking, you know, is this the is this the crack squad that's going to keep me safer? <laughs> <laughs> and most people believe, I think, and I certainly do believe that it's a sham, it's, and it's again, this is what happens with politics. Politics often cares about what's the, the perception in the moment, um, and you know, certainly after 9-11, there was lots of people who were fearful of flying, and the, the government thought, okay, here's how we're gonna actually make our airlines or our airways and, and transportation into and out of the US safer. We'll, we'll, we'll put into this whole new uh, government structure I think the TSA employs more people than anybody in our entire federal government now. Well, and we see
1: a lot, and this is actually something that I want to talk less flippantly about. I've been a little flippant, okay. you know, with these other points, but you know, we do often see a lot of people who go to work for the TSA. These are people who are maybe veterans; um, they're from other civil services. So there is some concern that I've heard about. You know, if we start privatizing these things at airports, which are huge employers, where are these people going to go? I, ha- I have heard that argument made before. This is a great place to go for our veterans. What do you have well, against and it, veterans? And
0: it is. I have nothing against veterans. I have everything for veterans, uh, veterans who are productive and want to, you know, uh, earn a good living and and have some training that can be applicable in a certain context. I mean, that that's a great thing. Uh, to have pilots and uh, security people and logistics people. You know, the military is a great training ground for a lot of that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that's the same argument we get with every single industry, right, Mitch? You know, if, if we allow for privatization and, oh, you actually happen to be right about that argument, we get better customer service, more efficiencies, lower cost structures, and therefore n- maybe fewer jobs or fewer the same kind of old jobs that we had before— then where are all these people going to go to work? Yeah, I mean that—that's the pin factory and Adam Smith. That's that's uh, the buggy whips. That's you know the, all those arguments from from you know time immemorial. People are saying, well, if you're right that this is going to be better and more efficient and less costly, then people are going to lose jobs. And there, there is some truth in that. That's that's the whole uh, that's Schumpeter's argument about you know creative destruction. That's what uh, the the great economist Joseph Schumpeter said is that you have this process of through destruction of certain parts of business or certain industries, you have massive creativity and innovation, and on a net basis, everyone wins. But in the meantime, you may have a few people who are out of jobs, and that does happen. And you know, the, the answer to that is you know people can adjust, people can learn to grow and to do other jobs. In fact, you and I were talking about this, you know, maybe a whole new podcast just, just on the psychology of that. You know, yeah. people not thinking, well, I have this job of you know making pins in a factory. Going back to Adam Smith's example, um, you know, and and I you know I have that that job versus having a machine do it. Um, and what am I going to do if I can't make pens? You know, What am I going to do if I can't make buddy whi- buggy whips? What I, what am I going to do? Well, there's no guarantee in life that says that kind of work that you're doing is going to be valued by people in the same way such that you get paid, a, quote, a living wage. There is some risk in life, and you as an individual and all of us as a collective are much better off when we have that innovation. And any rational person wants innovation and rationality to be applied to the rules or to the problem of survival and thriving, including flying on airplanes. Um, and so there will be potentially jobs that are lost, but there'll be much better jobs that'll be created. In one sense, that's what's happened in Canada. There's more technology being applied. So there are more people in the IT technology business in the, in the Canadian airline model because they're not handing little pieces of paper to get planes safely landed. But that, that's the answer is you know, no one is guaranteed a job. And it'll be okay. You're going to make adjustments. People are going to make adjustments, and we're going to all be better off by having that kind of innovation and problem-solving that goes on. So we, we've talked a little bit about you know, the air traffic control, the airport security, but what about the airports
1: themselves? They cost billions and billions of dollars to build. How can that be done privately?
0: Well, much more efficiently, much, at much better uh, quality and much lower costs, and that's that's just a principle that happens. I mean, th- that is oftentimes ma- massive projects, whether they're highways or infrastructure such as you know highways or bridges, airports. People think the only people who can take that on is you know such a big project as the federal government. But you have really really well run construction companies and contractors who can do that well, and you have great operators who could be doing that as well. Uh, and you wouldn't have to pay you know some kind of Uh, You know, when you go into an airport and want to buy a sandwich, you wouldn't be paying $15 for a sandwich. You'd be paying, you know, much more competitive price for a better sandwich when you're waiting for your airplane. It's the same principle. Airports themselves could be operated much more efficiently.
1: So one thing on that, Mike, I think what people might say, even here um, in Denver, DIA is putting—I don't know if it's already going to be on the ballot or not, but they're thinking about, um, you know, a bond that will raise— hundreds of millions of dollars to help finish dia's construction so i think what people would say is where are you getting the hundreds of millions of dollars to begin with to actually fund that structure or in this case renovate it so that it feels like an airport from the 21st century Where, where else would that money come from other than a government project who who could pay for it what entity could pay for it other than the government
0: people might say. Well, um, the government's getting its money from somewhere, right? Where are they getting it from?
1: Well, they're printing it from thin air.
0: They're either printing it from thin air or they're taxing people. Yep. I mean, they're, they're taxing businesses, individuals enough to pay for something. Or they're uh, borrowing, right? And that's what you're talking about with a bond. If they're trying to raise the money from a bond, they're selling bonds to investors. So that tells you that there's potentially demand, right? Now, bond investors are taking less risk than equity investors or stock investors, But um, there's demand for these kinds of things. There is enough demand out there for these kind of large projects. And if there was the ability to say, I can operate in an environment where I know I can make a long-term profit, I can plan for the long term, and that's one of the key aspects of capitalism in a broad sense and and very much a key aspect on a micro sense, any individual's life, and then in between there, a business, uh, being able to say, I can plan for the long term and know that my plans have a good chance of working out. If you have that kind of environment, that's what we mean by having the rule of law and and sort of a, a, a laissez-faire environment that allows people to make money and protect their contracts and reap a reward. If you have that kind of environment, then there absolutely is, in fact, that's the whole history of capitalism, is capital accumulation, um, where you could do bigger projects because you knew that you had the protection government in its proper role to protect your property rights and therefore your ability to make money on those property rights. If you had that kind of environment, corporations would both build big airports and uh, do great work in the, uh, in the airline industry and every other capital-intensive industry because they'd have, they would attract that kind of capital. And I think
1: that's definitely feasible to see with, with these large international airports, right? Airlines all coming together. People and and businesses who actually want to build the airport coming together, putting their capital in to build these airports. What about for these smaller regional airports? I know even even some people, uh, professors I had in college, they were they had their own little plane. They were pilots. They'd be able to take off from one of these regional. I don't even know if you call it an airport, regional airfield. You yeah. know that has some structures to to house the planes and allow for some air traffic control there. It's hard to imagine in those instances people being able to come up with enough money for, for you know, just the uh, hobbyist pilot. Mm-hmm. What, what would these hobbyist pilots, how, how could they be able
0: to pursue that? Well, that's the thing, though, is that, that a lot of airports in this country were little private landing strips. Mm -hmm. Somebody got out some equipment, you know, uh, and he and his buddies got together and said, we want to have a landing strip of gravel or grass or whatever it is, and we're just leveling it off. We're going to take some equipment and level it off so we have a place to land. And then they they add some, you know, then they decide to pave the thing. And then maybe they have some hangers. And then before they know it, they're saying, Well, we got a real you know, we're getting some traffic in here, and it's not just us buddies who are flying in that we got other yeah. people who want to fly into our airport because we got a good spot and a good thing going here. Oh, well, we need to go to the government and get some money to upgrade. Yeah. Versus allowing that to organically take place. And and um, you know, you don't need to for little communities or little, you know, private neighborhoods that want an airport, you don't need to have the government to pour a lot of money into that. And you can you can have safety, safety standards, but you don't have, need to necessarily have the same kind of level of commitment that you do at an international airport. Now, that brings up the question, people say, well, okay, maybe that kind of private uh, buddy type of airport for just a few people, few pilots, hobbyists, so to speak, that works, but it won't work for a complicated you know, international, very complex operation. And I say the opposite. You need more ability to plan, more ability to coordinate. And that's, again, what the pricing mechanism does is coordinated information, uh, allows for complex transactions and big projects to happen. You need to have that kind of freedom for it to happen correctly. Most people don't realize that the, the international air travel industry was in fact born in America because we had more freedom here than anywhere else. Uh, and that's partly why you have more innovation that happened at the turn of the the, the century uh, over 100 years ago. You had such a free environment. This was sort of the zenith or the, the peak of capitalism at that time. You had so much freedom that was in this country that you had much more innovation in many industries across the board. And that's what allowed for you to you to get this kind of uh, infrastructure that was being built. It wasn't government money necessarily at the time. Now it is today, and we're living off of that. And we're living off the, the sort of the the legacy of that freedom that has allowed for massive capital accumulation and investment to happen. But that isn't a guarantee and you know you and I are, are clamoring for and and making the case that people should be understanding that principle that that is what allows for the, you know, when you free up the human mind and free up people to make profits and to keep those profits without uh, confiscation of them or regulation of them, then you end up getting that kind of innovation. You, get a, you end up getting that, that wonderful good that's produced, uh, in this case, you know, cheaper, higher quality, safer airline travel. We haven't touched on unions yet, though. I mean, we haven't well,
1: really—is that where you're going to go? There, yeah, there's a lot to talk about on unions, too. One thing I just wanted to ask, you know, let's say that all of these airports are privatized, air traffic control is privatized. Is there, in your opinion, still a role for government from a national security standpoint to track flights and, you know, have customs when you get into the airport and, you know, stamp your passport and all that sort of thing?
0: I'm not sure. I mean, that's a really good question. Stamping your passport, I'm not sure if I. Really looked into it, whether we would need to have truly a passport system in the first place. Maybe, and certainly today that you know, you almost can't imagine. And that's one of the things I would want to challenge people. Just because I or you, Mitch, can't imagine a world that looks different, you know, in this case without passports or customs or whatever. Yeah, doesn't mean that it isn't something that someone else could imagine. Right, I mean, there's a lot of businesses, and there's a lot of things that I would have never thought of I mean you know i'm I'm sitting here with a microphone in front of me, a laptop, and you've got all this high tech equipment there's we have Crescent in the studio. <laughs> I mean, I would have never imagined any of that stuff, yeah, um, and so there's all kinds of things that i you know uh, as, as smart as I might be, I can't imagine how it could be coordinated differently, but I do know that if you allow people the freedom to use their imagination. And as long as they're being protected in their own property rights, that they will come up with better solutions. But the answer to your question is, is there a role for the government? Of course there is. I mean, and it always comes back to that one principle. And I know, I think you were saying the last time we talked, maybe, you know, there should be a... A drinking game. Every time Mike says individual rights, <laughs> then somebody has to drink a shot of something. But it does come back to individual rights. that That's the proper role of government is to protect individual rights. Almost every single question that you can come up with, you can come back to saying, well, is there a rights violation? Is there a potential rights violation in this case? then how does the government need to respond to that? How do they need to protect individual rights in this case? And certainly in the case of air travel uh, and uh, cargo travel, in the case of customs and so forth, um, there is potentially violations of individual rights, and the government probably does have a role in airports in some way or another, but not anywhere close to what they do now, and it's not defined that way in, in any stretch. I mean, if you asked you know, the Civil Aeronautics Board back then, or the FAA today, or all the different bureaucracies that are involved in, you know, the TSA, if you ask the average TSA employee, or even the TSA director, what is your role? Would he say it's to protect the individual rights of Americans? Or would he say some bureaucratic thing? Maybe it includes, you know, keeping our our public safe and things like that. But it wouldn't be that laser focus on rights protection. And I think that's what's missing in terms of our, our government understanding the proper, their proper role. Um, I don't know if I have really a much better answer to that to say specifically, here's how the government protects individual rights in the business of customs or in the business of identifying terrorists coming into or out of the country. I do believe in, that airlines themselves, you know, the people who have property, the people who have profits or losses to gain or lose, they have a much better incentive than a bureaucrat in Washington to be able to protect me and my rights and my safety. They have much better incentives. And I'd rather pay them than voluntarily through my ticket purchases than pay through uh, either you know, forced taxation or some you know, horrible taxation in the form of borrowing that they'll never be able to pay back in the way of inflation and so forth. Um, that's, that's a system that's just a system that actually says no, here's what our role is. We have a laser-like focus on this role and we can justify it this way uh, versus, you know, the, the collectivist altruist blob of an excuse that we have for regulation.
1: One thing I want to get into specifically and the Cato Institute, by the way, has done some really good work on airline deregulation and compiling research and doing its own research on a lot of these interesting topics. But one thing that the Cato Institute talks about is this thing called the cab air cabotage. Yep. And it goes back to a conversation we actually had um, several episodes ago, the Merchant Marine Act.
0: Sure, and the whole Jones, the Jones Act. Yes. Uh, it's protectionism, right?
1: And the idea, just to remind everybody, is that the government says for ships, a foreign... Essentially, a foreign-built ship, a foreign ship, cannot transfer transfer goods or people from point to point within the United States. And it turns out a similar concept applies to airlines as well. So you talked about your flying—what
0: um, are you flying to Europe? So uh, my bet is that I'll be flying—not my bet, I already know this. Uh, I'll wow. be flying Iceland Air to Iceland, uh, and then I believe we're flying— I think we're actually flying Iceland again to uh, Italy, and then from there it's a couple of different airlines. There's, there's multiple different airlines. I'll be flying back on United. Maybe I may have a Wizz Air. I don't know if you've heard of Wizz Air. <laughs> no, no, that
1: sounds fun. Though I've flown,
0: I... I've flown Wizz Air before. <laughs> well, I've... they're they're one of those low cost uh, uh, airlines in Europe. Uh, there's a bunch of them. It's amazing how many airlines there are out there. Um, but there, there's like I said, uh, you know, many well known uh, international. Airlines that I might be flying, and then there's some very localized ones. So,
1: Iceland Air, of course, you can take that from Denver, but Iceland Air cannot take you from point to point within the United States. You could not take Iceland Air from Denver to New York.
0: Most people aren't aware of this.
1: Most people aren't aware of it. Because, you know, you do, of course, see foreign airlines. True. It's just you don't think, well, they actually can only take me to a foreign city. Right. British Airways will take you to London. Right. They're not going to take you to Boston. Right. From Denver. And that's because of the law. And that's because of the law. And what's it, why I asked you about the airlines in Europe, the European Union—I don't say this very often, but they've actually done something that we could actually look up to uh, in this case—the European Union allows for— Air cabotage within its member countries. Yeah. Now
0: yeah. that's partly because they're, in a sense, trying to operate more like the U.S. They right? are. They're trying to. Because the U.S. You you think of uh, we got fifty states and fifty state governments, but heck, you know, we ought to let you know if you if you're if you if you've got an airline in Florida, you should be able to land in Colorado. Right. Right. And they're trying to do more of that, and that's why And that's also interesting. Partly that that whole development of the low cost airlines and the the quote regional airlines in Europe. Um, you know, we had an advantage in the U.S. of having much bigger capital. Uh, and again, this is because of the more freedom and capital-intensive investment in airline air, airports. Uh, Europe had many more smaller airports, and some of those regional operators like Ryanair took advantage of that. And that's partly why they've adopted more of that. They're like, well, you know, th- these are these are airlines that are seemingly working pretty. Pretty efficiently and productively for the for the public interest, and so let's go ahead and allow them to fly into one and you know and enter you know inside of each country rather than just saying okay you can't having these arcane rules saying well if you start in Italy you can't fly within Italy yeah um, they're allowing that and and certainly you're right Cato's right uh, that we should absolutely allow Iceland Air or British Airways to fly inside the U S from point to point
1: and. Cato has, well, like I said, they both compile research and do their own research. You've got to go to the Cato Institute website on your own. There's lots of good stuff there. But they have some great research about how allowing, you know, quote unquote, foreign airlines to operate within the United States point to point could actually serve more currently underserved population areas, and it can actually further lower our ticket prices, so another example of a concrete regulation that we should try to get rid of.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And again, that's, that's Cato's research and example on that specific regulation, but the principle applies having the government do its proper role and stay out of everything else. Uh, you end up getting higher quality, lower prices, better results across the board. Amen. So, Mike, where
1: is the airline industry going? Are we gonna Are we gonna have a new birth of freedom in the airline industry?
0: It's hard to say, right? I mean, we don't have that culturally right now, so it's hard yeah. to see that that would happen right now. Uh, I mean, the the tendency right now is to go the opposite r- direction. Most of our culture is clamoring for less freedom. Interestingly enough, and wanting government to solve problems. Uh, authorities whether they're blue authorities or red authorities whatever team they're on they're they're wanting their guys in power and those guys to be in charge if we just had our guys in charge of the airline industry then everything we, and we might call it more freedom and less regulation but it would be basically just yeah. our guys telling <laughs> telling the that airlines right. what to do or which airports could open which air, airlines could fly which routes and what you could uh, charge for tickets i mean We do need a renaissance in transportation uh, and certainly in in airlines. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting to me is airlines really haven't changed that much uh, in terms of how they go about transporting people over the last really several, 50 50 years or more. I mean, it's basically, you know, you got a big aluminum uh, uh, contraption that has people sitting there and, you know, the, the... the mechanism, the actual technology, hasn't changed much. We had, we had the Concorde. You know, you had this uh, supersonic flight, and it was pretty exciting. But, but even that got grounded, right? And and since that time period, there really has been no great leaps forward in how people travel. Now, we do have SpaceX, and you know, traveling to the the outer limits of the atmosphere on the horizon. That's all been because of privatized efforts. You know, uh, whether it's Elon Musk or or uh, 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 Dick Rutan you know, and some of the other you know, wonderful entrepreneurs who said you know, we don't need to wait for NASA. Uh, but that's what we need in commercial flight. We need that kind of uh, energy and innovation and creativity and entrepreneurial spirit applied to the problem of flight and making it better. Uh, and, but we won't get that until we have a freer market. We won't get that until people accept the idea of allowing People to make money and have a predictable future about making money, using their property as they want, and protecting their ability to make profits and keep profits, and make their own decisions based on their own judgment. And you know, my my hope would be that we would we would have more wisdom uh, in our policy making uh, halls, and we'd have more more importantly, that'll come from a culture of a people of citizens who want to be free and who who have the confidence about the future who are aspirational and who realize that they're not going to have an absolutely risk-free world. And coincidentally, the more risk that's taken by entrepreneurs, the safer our world ultimately gets because they solve problems. Entrepreneurs are problem solvers. They're, They're the practical, they take abstract ideas and problems that people are confronting and say, I wanna solve a problem and I wanna make money doing it and that's, that's the mechanism for having, having that kind of problem solved. So in the meantime, we have to look forward to continue being padded down by TSA agents, is what you're saying. Unfortunately, that seems to be the case. I don't see that changing very quickly. I don't see, I don't see anyone really in our, leg- our national or state legislatures really clamoring for, for uh, you know, anything different. So I think that, unfortunately, we're going we're gonna to see uh, you know, air travel be a similar sort of experience for some time to come until we actually change that culture. God save us all. God save us all. (laughs) But in the meantime, you should be advocating for freedom as it applies to air travel, as it applies to every single problem in your life. You should be advocating for individual rights, the proper role of government, mutual voluntary transactions, and you'll see. You'll see that it works. This is Mike Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project and our capital idea signing off. Thanks, Mitch. I appreciate this. This was a good idea for a podcast and I look forward to talking to you soon.
1: Thanks for having me.